According to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, here are the top 10 deadliest jobs in the United States of America. Working from number 10 to number one. Construction workers, farmers and ranchers, truck drivers, miners, refuse and recycling workers, roofers, extraction workers, aircraft pilots and engineers, fishers, and coming in at number one, loggers and lumberjacks. Now it's easy to see how these jobs can be incredibly deadly. Uh, these jobs entail working with massive machinery, working on the open seas, or studiously avoiding falling trees with a large chainsaw. These are, are dangerous and, and deadly jobs. But I don't think these are the most deadly jobs that the world, or even the United States, has ever seen. Thousands of years ago, 22,000 men were commissioned to work in and around a tent. When it was time for, uh, for the tent to move, they had to pack it up and carry it from one destination to another. I don't know how many times, how many of them died in the process, but I do know that the prospect of death was always and constantly looming. If they touched the wrong thing in the wrong way, they would immediately be put to death. If they looked at the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time, they would immediately be put to death. Their job was more dangerous than the 600,000 other men in their country who had been enlisted in the army. What I'm trying to tell you is that working at this tent was more dangerous than going to war. And that's because this wasn't just any old tent. It was God's royal tent. It was his tabernacle, his earthly dwelling place. And this work for God was far more dangerous than any man with a sword in his hand. This morning, as we study the book of Numbers, we're going to think about the deadly work of the Levites. And here's the thing about this work. Though it was deadly, it was an invaluable service to the people of Israel. Because it, it made a way for God to dwell with His people. It was deadly work, but it was worth it. For there was no greater blessing than to be with God, and for God to be with His people. And as we think about the work of the Levites, let's be sure to also think about the work of Jesus Christ. It is through His deadly work that He once and for all ensured that God would be with us that He would never leave us or forsake those who believe in Him. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 3. That's where we're going to begin. If you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 110. 110. Two weeks ago, we started the exciting adventure of studying the book of Numbers, and we specifically looked at the first two chapters of the book where a census of all of the tribes of Israel was taken. All, well, except one. The tribe of Levi was set aside for a unique and special service to the Lord. And this morning, as we study Numbers chapters 3 and 4, we consider their service more closely. But first, let's remember a little bit of background 
regarding the book of Numbers. Numbers was initially written and compiled by Moses sometime in the 15th century BC. Uh, the, the name that we know the book of Num- we know the book by Numbers uh, comes from the events in the opening chapters of the book. The people of Israel are numbered and listed. Numbers is the English name, but the book also has a Hebrew name. And the Hebrew name of the book is In the Wilderness, which is fitting because the book follows the people of Israel as they prepare to depart Mount Sinai and begin their journey through the wilderness to the promised land of Canaan. In Numbers chapters 3 and 4, we are reminded that the Lord set aside the tribe of Levi, we know as the Levites, and they were to encourage faith and faithfulness to God. We're going to study these chapters, Numbers 3 and 4, in three sections under three headings. Particular call, particular redemption, and particular service. And the undercurrent of these two chapters, what's kind of pushing these chapters along, the main theme behind them, is the wonderful reality that God dwells with His people. And because God dwells with His people, He calls a particular tribe into His service, caring for His earthly dwelling place, the tabernacle. So let's begin with our first point, point where we learn about God's particular call. And as we do, read Numbers chapter 3, verses 1 to 13 with me. Numbers chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near. And set them before Aaron, the priest, that they may minister with him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they are wholly given, as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Now in the previous two chapters, in the previous two chapters, the Lord numbered all of the men of Israel who were able to go to war. All all the men, that is, of course, except the tribe of Levi. In those first two chapters, we were introduced to the idea that the Levites were to be the religious leaders in Israel. They were charged with helping the people of Israel love the Lord. They weren't called to do battle against foreign nations in war. They were called to do battle against unbelief. 
They were called to do battle for the hearts of the people of Israel, for their holiness. And that is why their duties were centered around the tabernacle. That is what we were introduced to in the first two chapters. And now we are exploring their identity and duties in more detail in these two chapters. Here, in verses 1 to 13, we're reminded in broad strokes of who the Levites were. Aaron and his family had a special, a special place in the tribe of Levi. The, the priests in Israel were primarily to come from Aaron's family, specifically his sons. They were a special subset inside of a special tribe. The priests came from Aaron's family line out of the tribe of Kohath. The broader uh, tribe of the Levites were called to work and serve alongside the priests from Aaron's family. Aaron's four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, were identified and named as priests, but not, not without a comment on some sobering past history. In verse 4, you'll notice that we're reminded that the Lord struck down Nadab and Abihu. You may recall their story from Leviticus 10. Instead of serving the Lord in the manner that he sanctioned and authorized, Nadab and Abihu served the Lord in a sacrilegious way. And when I use that word sacrilegious, I, I don't mean unreligious. I simply mean unauthorized. Service to the Lord is taking place, but not in the prescribed manner. And when that happens, the name of the Lord is being profaned. The, the word sacrilege in its early use meant stealing from God. And that is exactly what took place with Nadab and Abihu. They were stealing from God the worship that properly belonged to Him by not properly offering worship to Him. Now, if we were to read Leviticus 8, 9, and 10, which I'd encourage you to go ahead and do this afternoon, wonderful section of God's Word. If you were to read those chapters in sequence, we would see an emphasis on obedience to God's commands. With regard to these two men, we're kind of left asking the question, how could they be so careless? Or perhaps more to the heart of the matter, why would they disregard the Lord's commands concerning how He is to be worshipped? No less than 13 times in Leviticus chapters 8 and 9, obedience to the Lord is stressed. Obedience to the Lord's commands of worship is stressed more than 13 times. It, it is not safe, we learn, to disobey God. And this principle is just as true today as it was on the day that Nadab... And Abihu disobeyed the Lord's commands. We put ourselves in grave spiritual danger when we give ourselves to sin and deliberately and consciously disobey God. Consider what the writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. There we read, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Indeed, our God is a consuming fire. And the writer of the Hebrews had in mind a context of worship. The same context that we see in Leviticus and the priest's whole orientation here in Numbers. Nadab and Abihu's great sin was not in their lack of knowledge of God's commands. It was a much deeper problem than that. Though the glory of the Lord and His presence had come to rest in the tabernacle... It clearly didn't come to rest in the hearts of Nadab and Abihu. And a related question is this. 
Has the glory of the Lord come to rest in the hearts of the congregation of Israel? Has it come to rest in our own hearts? That was the labor of the priesthood that Aaron's two sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, were to pick up and carry forward, reminding the people of the glory of the Lord and obedience to Him and the worship that was due to Him. Eleazar and Ithamar, they and, and all who were part of the tribe of Levi were to reflect in their lives that they had been claimed by the Lord. For the most part, that would be prominently displayed in their duties. In particular, their duties, as defined in verses 6 through 8, fall under the rubric of service. Above all, these men were to be servants. They were to serve the Lord under the direction of Aaron, and their service was to take the form of guarding and keeping. Aaron and his sons would guard the dwelling place of God so that God's presence would not be defiled. In that sense, they would guard the tent. Because he, because God is perfect and pure, God cannot stand sin in His presence and sinful man cannot stand in His presence. In another sense, the, the priests would guard the people from the wrath of God. If, if they did not put to death those who illicitly inappropriately or ignorantly came near to the tent, as verse 10 makes clear, then God would put them to death. Indeed, according to Numbers chapter 1, verse 53, if the Levites did not put these arrogant people to death, then God's wrath would break out against the whole congregation. The Levites' guarding had a twofold function. One, guard God from arrogant people. And two, guard arrogant people from God. We're going to come back to verses 11 and 13 and consider them in connection with the verses that follow. But for now, I want us to make sure that we don't lose sight of a remarkable thing that the Lord does. In verse 12, look what the Lord says. In verse 12, the Lord says, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine. The Lord doesn't merely call them. He claims them as His own. He called them, commissioned them, and commanded these men to be servants, to guard, to work, and keep His royal tent. They were not volunteer. They were voluntold. You are going to do this. And of the tribes of Israel, they were the one tribe, the one and only tribe, that was particularly called to minister before the Lord and bless all of the other tribes of Israel in doing so. What a privilege to be sovereignly called into the service of God. Ultimately, we know that these priests and Levites pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was and is the great high priest who served God and the people of God. Jesus was especially and particularly called into service by God. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus told His disciples that He came to serve and in John chapter 6, verse 38, we learn that it was the Father who sent Him. He guarded sinners like you and me. In His death, Jesus bore the wrath of God against sinners like you and me. He guarded those who believe in Him from the wrath of God in His death. And in His resurrection, He assures us who have faith in Him that we will never have to face God's wrath. When God calls us to faith in Jesus Christ, something remarkable happens. We become priests in the service of our great high priest. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter says that Christians are priests. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says of Christians, Peter says this of Christians, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, to be sure, our, our priesthood no longer revolves around a tabernacle or temple like Aaron's sons and the Levites. Instead, our service revolves around the one who tabernacled among us and is the fulfillment of the temple of God. When, when God calls sinners to be His servants, He calls them particularly. In other words, when God calls sinners to salvation and into the service of His royal priesthood, He calls them by name. There is no room for boasting in this sovereign call. For it did not begin with us, where in our wisdom it began with God and His wisdom. He says, they shall be mine. God says, Chris shall be mine. Jean shall be mine. Clark shall be mine. Susan shall be mine. Christian, He calls you by name. And he claims you as his treasured possession. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We read those very words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Because of this sovereign, generous, and gracious call, we serve him in light of who He is and what He commands. In light of God's particular call to the Levites to serve Him, let's turn now and consider our second point, particular redemption. And as we do, read Numbers chapter 3, verses 14 to 20. Numbers chapter 3, verses 14 to 20. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, List the sons of Levi by fathers' houses and by clans, Every male from a month old and upward you shall list. So Moses listed them according to the word of the Lord, as he was commanded. And these were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. And these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their clans, Libni and Shimni, and the sons of Kohath by their clans, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, and the sons of Merari by their clans, Malahi, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites by their fathers' houses. Now, in the first 13 verses, the Lord called for Moses to bring the tribe of Levi near, to gather them around, and now he calls for a census of the tribes of Levi to be taken. Uh, this is the first of two censuses to be taken, and they, they both have different aims. Notice in verse 13 who is to be listed. Every male from a month old and upward you shall list. Uh, and this census is going to be kind of followed along family lines, just as the censuses in chapters 1 and 2 did. The sons of Levi were Gershon and Kohath and Merari. And every male a month and older would then be counted. Now in the, in the verses that follow we get that number and, and we get more. Uh, we learned that the, about the clans that belonged to Gershon and Koath and Merari, uh, the, the number under each, the, the location where each would camp, 
the chief who would lead them and an overview of the duties that, that each would perform. So, so for example, if you were to look at verses 21 to 26, it's there that we learn that Gershon belonged to the can, clan of the of Libnites and the clan, the clan of the, the Shimnites. Uh, according, uh, they're listing according to the number of all the males from month old and upward was 7,500. And they, they were to, to camp behind the tabernacle on the west. Eliasaph was their chief. And that their duties, they revolved uh, around the tabernacle, the tent with its, its covering, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the door of the court that's around the tabernacle, the altar, and its cords, uh, and all the service connected with these. So the, the next two groups, Kohath and Merari, they, they follow a similar pattern. Kohath in verses 27 to 32 and Merari in verses 33 to 37. In both of those sections, we learned about the clans that belonged to them, the, the number under each, the location where each would camp, the chief uh, who would lead them, and an overview of the duties that they would each perform. And there's, there's an illustration in your bulletin that I hope uh, would help you to kind of visualize this. And visualize what's going on and seeing where each group uh, would camp and what uh, they would be responsible for. Now the group that I have not mentioned so far is, is Moses, Aaron, and the priests. Their information is contained in verse 36. Uh, their clans and number are not listed probably because uh, they're something of a subset of the Kohathites. And so their numbers are included with the census of that tribe. They do, however, camp in a different place. On the east side of the tabernacle, you'll notice. Uh, it was a privileged place, but it was also a dangerous place, and it demanded devotion. It was the entrance of the tabernacle, the, the, the first gateway of moving closer to the Holy of Holies. It, it demanded not merely a willingness, but an obligation to put to death those who inappropriately drew near. Now, I, I know I haven't gone into depth about what's, what, what each group is responsible for because that's actually what chapter 4 really does. Besides, the whole purpose of this particular census is revealed in verses 40 to 51. Um, just read verses 40 to 48. Read Numbers chapter 30, excuse me, Numbers chapter 3, verses 40 to 48 now. And the Lord said to Moses, List all the firstborn, son, firstborn, firstborn males of the people of Israel from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names. And you shall take the Levites for me, I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. So Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded him. And all the firstborn males, according to the number of names, from a month old and upward, as listed, were 22,273. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The Levites, instead of all, take the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites, instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine, I and the Lord. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 geras. 
and give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this section connects up uh, with what we read in Numbers chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. In those verses, we learn that the Lord decided to take the Levites instead of all of the firstborn sons of Israel. Now, here is where we need to kind of work backwards in our biblical history. We need to go back to the book of Exodus and remember what took place there. When, when God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, all of the firstborn sons of Egypt died on the night of the Passover. God did not pass over the homes of the people of Israel, uh, people of Egypt. He judged the people of Is- Egypt and their firstborn sons. But he did pass over the homes of the people of Israel. He spared their sons, their firstborn sons. All of the firstborn sons of Israel were spared because they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb that was placed on the doorposts of their homes. Those firstborn sons were to belong to the Lord. Originally, it seems like those firstborn sons were to become the priests in Israel. But something terrible happened. In Exodus 32, we learned that Moses, he was up on the mountain talking with God. And while he was up there, the people of Israel had formed a golden calf and worshipped it. In other words, there was something akin to mass apostasy that occurred throughout Israel. The faithfulness, loyalty, and commitment of the firstborn sons was not apparent in that sad event. Moses came down from the mountain and he asked the camp of Israel, Who is on the Lord's side? And then he tells the men who have gathered around him in support of him, the Levites, they were who gathered around Moses, he tells them what the Lord has commanded. The Lord has commanded the Levites to search out and find those who were committed to idolatry. They were commissioned to find those who were not on the Lord's side and to put them to death. The Lord relented from wiping out all of Israel. But he did not relent from punishing those who were committed to idolatry and open rebellion. From that point on, the Levites were called into the service of the Lord. And what is taking place in Numbers is the formalization of that call. So here's here's what's going on in Numbers chapter 3 verses 14 to 51. The Levites are listed and they're found to have 22,000 men a month or older. Then the firstborn sons of all of the other tribes of Israel are listed, and they are found to have 22,273. It was pretty close, but it wasn't an exact match. And the difference between the two groups, between all of the male Levites and all of the firstborn sons of the other tribes in Israel, is 273. That's a problem. It's a problem that the text is presenting to us. That means that 273 firstborn sons in Israel have not been redeemed and need to be redeemed. The purpose of the census of chapter 3 is to see to it that every firstborn son in Israel was ransomed and redeemed. Now there's no doubt that we learn about the dignity of of God's call on the tribe of Levi in Numbers chapter 3. But we also learn about the comprehensive care that God has for all of His people. This was a lesson to the Levites, just as much as it was a lesson to all of Israel. 
as the Levites surveyed those 22,273 men, they're the firstborn sons in Israel, they were given a compelling reminder that God cares for each one of them and for all of His people. There was a particular redemption that needed to take place for those firstborn sons. A price had to be paid in order for them to be redeemed. And what we also need to recognize is that God provided for that redemption. He provided a way for the remaining 273 sons to be redeemed. According to verse 47, five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary. That was the redemption price. The idea that this money is given as the redemption price, verse 46, or as a ransom, makes clear that something is owed to the Lord. A debt, a price had to be paid. And it was verse 50. And, and it was, verse 50 uh, makes, makes it clear that it was paid. This price of redemption was paid. Now this, this concept of redemption is one that touches uh, on one of the central themes of the Bible. And it teaches us about Jesus and the work that He would do too. And, and if you're here this morning and if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this is what I especially want you to understand about Christianity. We owe our lives to God. And why is that? Well, the truth is, is that we've all been made by God. We've been made in His image. He is the author of each of our lives. And as the author of our lives, He has authority over them. We are dependent upon Him for our existence, for our life and breath, and therefore we owe our lives to Him. And more specifically, we owe our lives to the worship and glory of His name. The sad truth is that we have not lived in His way. We have lived our own way. We've worshipped and served ourselves and others rather than worshiping and serving Him. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And it's nothing less than rebellion against God. We've lived in such a way as to attempt to steal the worship and glory away from God, just like Nadab and Abihu. And because of our sin against God, we all rightly stand in danger of facing His just, eternal, and holy wrath against our sins. We deserve to pay the penalty for our sins. And that penalty is death. But there's good news. And that good news is that God sent His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to earth. Jesus, He was fully God and fully man. And He lived the life that we have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God. Every moment of His life, He worshipped God. Every thought and word and deed brought glory to God. And yet... As Jesus Himself said, He came to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus paid the redemption price for sinners by dying on the cross. He paid the price that was owed to God, our very lives. He paid it in His blood, which was infinitely more valuable than those silver shekels because He was perfectly pure and free from sin. In His death, Jesus ransomed many. He made atonement for all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. Jesus' death satisfied God's divine justice. And we know that God's wrath was satisfied because three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him. Now, friend, Jesus 
calls you to turn from your sins and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Believing that He lived and died and rose again for you and for your sins. Jesus calls us to give all of our lives to Him, to the glory of God. He calls you to worship Him. And not just worship Him today, tomorrow, but to worship Him each and every day that He gives you on this earth and for all eternity. And if you want to know more about what it means that Jesus paid the price of your redemption through His blood, then please come and speak with me at the door after the service or or speak with a family member or friend that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important or wonderful that you could think about than this good news that Jesus paid the redemption price for our sins. Christian, Christian, this news that Jesus has paid the redemption price has implications for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul reminds us of this. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, Paul says. Brothers and sisters, those two verses issue a command based upon two realities. We are commanded to glorify God in our bodies. With all that we have and all that we are, we are to glorify God. What's more, we are to use our bodies to that end. We are not Gnostics. We do not believe that the flesh is bad and spirit is good. No, both are good. God gave both of them to us. We are a psychosomatic unity. And we are to use our souls and bodies to glorify God. And this command springs from two truths. First, we were bought with a price. We were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And secondly, God is with us. Every moment of every day, God is with us. Now that Jesus has ascended into heaven and given us the Holy Spirit, we are God's earthly temple. In the tent of our flesh, God the Holy Spirit dwells. God has purchased us, redeemed us, to dwell with us. If there's one thing that Numbers chapter 4 emphasizes, it's this, that God dwells with His people, and they are to serve Him. So let's turn now and consider our third and final point particular service. Third and final point, particular service. We're going to look at all of Numbers chapter 4 here. Now before we turn to look at the text of chapter 4, let me offer a word on how these chapters unfold or are connected. As I mentioned before, these two chapters contain an introduction and then two censuses. At first, we might think that the census of chapter 3 is being repeated in chapter 4 and that they're the same thing. If we're honest with ourselves, uh, some of us might get slightly lazy in reading this section of God's Word. Let's be honest, lazy reading does happen from time to time. Uh, When lazy reading happens, sometimes we read sections with similarities and wrongly begin to think that we're reading the same thing over again. But we're not, actually. The listing in chapter 3 was for the purpose of being sure that all the firstborn sons of Israel were redeemed by a Levite or that the redemption price was paid for them. The listing in chapter 4, which we're about to look at, has a different focus. 
Unlike the list in chapter 3, this listing in chapter 4 picks up without a general introduction. Kohath, Gershon, and Merari are relisted, but this time in a different way and in a different order. Instead of all the males a month old and up being listed, all of the males 30 years old and up to 50 years are listed for each tribe. These are the men who are responsible to carry the tabernacle and its furnishings as the people of Israel prepare to leave Sinai and make their way to Canaan. These are also the group of men who are responsible to set up the tabernacle when the camp would come to a stop, when it would come to a rest, and they would camp. Uh, this list is also different than chapter 3 because the tribes are listed in a different order. And that is because this list, in some ways, does not revolve around the tribes so much as it revolves around the things that they're responsible for. In other words, this list works from the most holy things, those things that would be in the center of the most holy place of the tabernacle, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, the very footstool of God on earth, to the least holy things, the, the pillars around the court and the bases and pegs and cords, and with all their equipment kind of accessories. Again, the, the, the diagram on your, your outline might be helpful to visualize this. This list follows most interior to most exterior. It works from the most holy things and the group responsible for them to the least holy things and the group responsible for them. So with, with this in mind, let's start at the center of the tent and the Kohathites who are responsible with these things. So let's read about the first group and the most holy things that they're responsible for. Read Numbers chapter 4, verses 1 to 20 now. Numbers chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their fathers' houses, from 30 years old up to 50 years old, and all who can come on duty to do the work of the tent of meeting. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth of all blue and put it in its poles. And over the table of the bread of presence they shall spread a cloth of blue and put on it the plates and the dishes for the incense, the bowls and the flagons and the drink offering. The regular showbread also shall be on it. Then they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet and cover the same with a covering of goatskin and shall put it in its poles. And they shall take a cloth of blue and cover the lampstand for the light with its lamps, its tongs, its trays, and all the vessels for oil with which it is supplied. And they shall put it with all its utensils in a covering of goatskin and put it on the carrying frame. And over the golden altar they shall spread a cloth of blue and cover it with a covering of goatskin and they shall put it in its poles. And they shall take all the vessels of the service that are used in the sanctuary and put them on the cloth of blue and cover them with a covering of goatskin and put them on the carrying frame. And they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. And they shall put on it all the, all the utensils of the altar which are used for the service there. The fire pans, the forks, the shovels, and the basins. All the utensils of the altar. And they shall spread on it a covering of goatskin. And they shall put it in its poles. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary 
and all the furnishings of the sanctuary. As the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these things. But they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. So here, here's this census. It begins with Kohath because they were responsible to carry the most holy things. Verse 4. They were responsible to carry them, but they were not allowed to pack them or even to look on them. In, in verse 5, we learn that only the priests, only Aaron and his sons were responsible to see and to pack the most holy things. Indeed, there were grave consequences for the Kohaths if they touched the holy things. Looking at the middle of verse 13. As the camp sets out after the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these things. But they must not touch the holy things lest they die. Is this not particular service? You can carry these things but you cannot touch these things. The warning of death is heightened in verse 20. Where we learn that the Kohathites would not even go in and look upon the most holy things. Sometimes, when we're concerned about certain things, we'll say, you can look, but don't touch. That's not what the Lord says to the Kohathites in this interest. No, He says, you can't touch. In fact, you can't even look. That's why Aaron and his sons had their own particular service of packing up the most holy things. They packed them in various materials and different colors. And it's hard to say what each color or material meant exactly, but it's, it's not hard to say that the Lord was particular about how He wanted His royal tent packed for the journey. The Lord is even particular about who He wants to carry these things. Not only are males 30 years old, up to 50 set aside to carry these things, men who were of age and had time to digest the weight of this responsibility, but only the Kohathites were to carry these things. That's why I think the Lord tells Moses and Aaron in verse 18 not to allow the Kohathites to make mistakes in their particular service. Aaron and his sons, in one sense, were to micromanage the Kohathites, giving each one a particular assignment. You're going to take this one, you're going to take that one, this is how you're going to carry it, this is how you're not going to carry it. This is what you are going to do. And this micromanagement was for their good. This is, this is micromanagement that is life-saving. Who knew that that was possible? With, all, with God, all things are possible, right? This micromanagement was life-saving. It served the Kohathites, protected them. These were good commands for them. Children, youth, young adults... Do you ever think that the Bible's commands are too restrictive? Now, I could tell you that, look, He's God. This is His world. He, he can give these commands. He can make these rules. And frankly, that would be completely true. But do you know what? God's commands are for our good. Just think about why God put these commands in place for the Kohathites. To protect them. To, to save their lives. Think about why God gave the, the Levites their duties. To protect the whole congregation of Israel. 
God's commands are not only morally right, but they are for our good. We should see God's love in His commands. Children, youth, young adults, let me encourage you to spend some time this afternoon or this evening thinking with a friend or, or your parents about the goodness and love of God displayed in His commands. And you'll notice that when we read uh, those verses, there were all kinds of meticulous details. Meticulous details and particular prescriptions for service that began with the Kohathites. They really continue on in verses 21 and 28. In verses 29 to 33, where the sons of Gershon and Merari are given their particular areas of service. Verses 34 to 39, you'll see, they're, they're really just a, a summary of the results of this second census and a statement which emphasized Moses and the Levites' obedience to God's commands. Now let's just step back for a moment and think about why God would give His people such lengthy, meticulous, dangerous, and particular instructions concerning their service. What's, what's the big picture here? What are we to really walk away from and have a sense of when we look at this. What, what is the lesson for the Levites and the people of Israel? Well, the lesson for the, for the people of Israel is that God really is dwelling with His people. He is dwelling with them. He will travel and go with them. And in His wisdom, He set aside an entire tribe to help make that possible. What a gracious gift to the people of Israel the Levites were. They would be wise to take good care of that tribe. And, and what lessons should the Levites learn from these instructions? Well, the, the same lessons, really. God is with them, so take care. In this particular call to this particular service, God gave them the particular privilege that the other tribes do not have. This sacred privilege was also a sacred duty. And they needed to execute their task with the glory of God in view. And this is where I'd like us to conclude. As the people of Israel considered the truth contained in these two chapters, that they should be comforted by the fact that God would be with them on their journey to Canaan, their faith should be strengthened. And they should be confident that our God will give what He commands. If, if He commands that they conquer the promised land of Canaan, then they should be confident that He will give the victory in that conquest. God is with His people. And these two chapters make that abundantly clear. He calls a particular tribe into His service so that they might ensure His presence among His people. Both when the camp comes to rest and when it moves on. I've said it before, and, and, and I'll say it again. Our journey here on this earth is a lot like that of the people of Israel. We live in the wilderness of this world. And just as God was with the people of Israel, so He is with us in an even more glorious and powerful way through Jesus Christ. Octavius Winslow said it like this, God is with us in Christ, with us in every step of our journey to heaven, with us to guide us in perplexity, to soothe in sorrow, 
to comfort in bereavement, to rescue in danger, to shield in temptation, to provide in want, to support in death, and to conduct us safely to glory. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our God is with us in our journey home to heaven. Our Father called us. The Son redeemed us with His own blood. And He dwells with us by His Spirit. All praise and glory belong to our triune God. Let's pray together.